Welcome to episode 46 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Sarah Bradley, student at Western University of Health Sciences College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific and vice chair of the RSA Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Molly Estes, assistant professor of emergency medicine at Loma Linda University. Today, Ms. Bradley and Dr. Estes discuss hematologic-oncologic emergencies. Good afternoon, everyone. You're listening to AAEM RSA podcast. I'm Sarah Bradley, part of the Education Committee. We are so honored to have Dr. Molly Estes joining us today. She completed her emergency medicine residency training and fellowship in medical education at Stanford and currently works as a clinical faculty at Loma Linda University. She will be presenting Hemonc Emergencies. We can do something about them at the Scientific Assembly tomorrow. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Estes. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. All right, so today we will be covering neutropenic fever, hemophilia, and tumor lysis syndrome. And hyperviscosity syndrome. So hematology oncology isn't the first thing that you think of when someone says emergency medicine. Is there a reason why you chose to present this specific topic at AAM 2018? I think mostly because I personally find it absolutely terrifying. <laughs> I feel like heme-onc was something I became a little complacent about uh, during residency. It was very much one of those things of, oh, well, they have a fever, and oh, they're on chemotherapy. Well, just go ahead and place the admission order now. We all know what's going to happen next. It became so routine to just call the specialist, uh, especially since I did my training at a tertiary-level care center. But for many people, and as it's slowly occurred to me over the last few years, is that this is the absolute high-risk scenario. These patients are already have so many hits against them that if we aren't aware of some of the things that we can diagnose at the level of the emergency room and how to appropriately manage them, then they are going to get the final hit to the system, and that's going to be all it for them. So I feel as if we, as emergency physicians, enter into this topic crippled by our own lack of confidence and crippled by some of the ignorance that we carry towards the topic. And I was hoping to be able to give every doc just a few tools to have in their toolbox and a few diagnoses to consider so that we can be the most excellent clinicians that I know that all of us can be. Definitely. We need to take care of these patients. As you said, they're commonly immunocompromised and they have so many hits against them that we want to do the best that we can too. Absolutely. So what's the most common hemonc emergency we can expect to encounter in the emergency department? Well, I think one of the problems that we enter into when we begin to talk about hemonc emergencies is that we always say it exactly like that, hemonc emergencies. It's actually two entirely separate spectrums of disease processes. You have hematologic problems, which includes everything from different types of anemia and transfusion scenarios and sickle cell and all of these other type of blood disorders at the same exact time that you have the completely separate category of oncologic problems with tumor burden and spinal compression and SVC syndrome. And there's a lot of regional variance when you come across these types of problems. Some hospitals in a particular area will see all of the sickle cell patients for that region, while the hospital just down the street will see maybe two or three a year. So by far out of 
all of the separate problems in all of these two categories, I think the one thing that we can all expect to consistently see throughout the course of our careers really is neutropenic fever. So how do you exactly define neutropenia in these patients? I am so glad you asked that question because it's actually a really specific definition. So the two different parts of the disease entity you have to have is one, neutropenia, and two, a fever, which seems pretty straightforward, and yet at the same time, there's a lot of confusion around it. So neutropenia is defined as an absolute neutrophil count of less than 1,000, so less than one. Now, that can be further subcategorized into severe neutropenia, which is an ANC, an absolute neutrophil count of less than 500, or profound neutropenia. Why profound is worse than severe, I don't really know. But profound neutropenia, which is an ANC less than 100, which means you have about one lonely neutrophil wandering around your bloodstream trying to fight off infection. Any patient with an ANC less than 1,000 qualifies as neutropenic. And the other two definitions are really just how scared do we have to be and how broad do we have to go with their empiric treatment. Now, the fever part of it is probably the more important part of the definition. Fever is defined as a temperature over 38 degrees Celsius for lasting longer than an hour or a temperature greater than 38.3 degrees Celsius at any time. And the reason why I find this interesting is because we will see a lot of patients who come into the department of, oh, yes, I had a fever at home. It was 102.5, and I took some Tylenol, and now they're afebrile in your department. And the question is, do I believe that fever that they had at home, or does it have to be an ED-proven fever? And according to the strictest definitions, it does not have to be. We honor that fever at home um, if it meets one of these two criteria. So absolute neutrophil count less than 1,000, fever over 38 for over an hour, or a fever over 38.3 at any one given time. Great definition. Thank you. What do you do if the temperature is borderline or they just say that they feel warm? Because we always have patients coming in saying, I feel warm, but I never actually took my temperature. (laughs) Exactly. The tactile fever that is the bane of every review of systems. For all intents and purposes, you should still probably be doing the exact same workup on those patients, even if they don't have a true fever. Now, what that will transition into as part of your clinical treatment is that The patient who does not have the true fever is not going to get the same broad-spectrum antibiotics that a truly febrile neutropenic patient is going to get. They are still at very high risk, and so uh, many physicians will find themselves in this gray zone of a little bit febrile, maybe some borderline labs, and what in the world am I supposed to do with this? Because we know that every single time we admit these patients, they run a risk of catching some really bad infection in our own hospitals. There are actually a couple of really fantastic clinical index scores that we can use in order to risk stratify these patients. And the one that is most commonly used is the MASCC risk index for febrile neutropenia. And it's something that has been proven in both the fields of hematology, oncology, as well as emergency medicine as being able to help an ED physician decide if the patient is high risk to be admitted and should be admitted or if they're low risk and still go home with very close outpatient follow-up. There's even an MD-Calc application for this risk index. And so you just work your way through it. It takes into account the burden of illness, so their symptom severity, which is your clinical gestalt of how sick the patient looks, what type of oncologic process they have, if they are dehydrated, if they had a fever or were ever hypotensive, 
all of that creates a number which tells you how high risk the patient is. So what are the components of the MASK score? So each individual component, I kind of just barely summed them up, but the specific components are first and foremost, burden of illness, which they define as symptom severity. That is your clinical gestalt as the physician taking care of the patient. And you get points for if they look 100% healthy or if they look a little bit sick or if they look very, very ill. This entire scoring system is actually done on a reverse score. So the more points you have, the better off you are. And the less points you have, the more at risk you are. The second criteria is hypotension. So any systolic blood pressure less than 90. If you have any history of active lung disease, which puts you at much higher risk for uh, very poor clinical complications, such as chronic bronchitis or COPD or emphysema, the type of cancer you have gets you more or less points. So either solid tumor cancers, a hematologic cancer with no history of a fungal um, infection, differentiated from a hematologic cancer with history of prior fungal infections. And then finally, if the patient appears dehydrated and needed IV fluids, if they were inpatient or outpatient at the time they first got their fever, and then what the patient's age is greater than or equal to 60 or less than 60 years of age. And what is the number for admit versus I can discharge this patient safely home. Absolutely. So the total score that you can come up with is 26 points. Any cutoff value above 21 points is a very low risk patient. So anybody ranging from 21 to 26 points is probably safe to go home provided they've got appropriate outpatient follow-up. Patients who are ranging less than 21 points are at much higher risk of having complications from febrile neutropenia, such as subsequent need for an ICU admission, very clinically significant hypotension, or any of the other complications from sepsis that we usually see. Obviously, the closer you are to zero points, the more high risk you are. But usually at that point, you're being able to clinically see evidence of that in your patient. And your clinical gestalt is already saying, this patient's really, really sick. I don't care what the numbers say, they still need to be admitted. Definitely. So how do you work up these patients? You do all the things. All the things. (laughs) All the things. You send all the labs and you do all the things. (laughs) Very tongue-in-cheek, but actually these patients really do need a very comprehensive workup. So I describe it to my learners as the sepsis workup on steroids. So you're going to be doing all of your usual sepsis labs, CBC, complete metabolic panel, lactate, coagulation factors. If your shop has it available, a procalcitonin can also be very helpful to try to distinguish very subtle presentations of uh, bacteremia. But then you're also going to be making sure that these patients have the full spectrum of cultures done as well. So if they have a cough, you send a sputum culture. And I have to say, personally, I don't think I've ever ordered a sputum culture on a patient presenting to the emergency room, except for in this setting. You will order stool cultures um, and stool studies if they're having diarrhea. If they have any a wound anywhere on their body, you're going to culture that and send it off. And one of the things you have to remember to do for your blood cultures is that if the patient has any sort of indwelling line, so a pick line, a portic half, then you're going to do a very specific type of blood culture, which is one that has a time to positivity. So this is where the lab actually takes a new stick peripheral blood culture and times that against the blood culture from the line in question 
And if the line culture turns positive first before the peripheral culture, then that actually is an indication that they have an infected line and that needs to be removed, which for our patients with tunneled access catheters of one shape or form is not a removal process that's easy to do. So that's why it's so important. If they have a multi-lumen line, then you have to remember to take a blood culture from each of the lumens. Then a couple of really specific things. This is not the time to do a digital rectal exam on your patient. This is one area that can actually, is, is a subtlety that can sometimes get you into a little bit of trouble. Because they may or may not be neutropenic, even if they're reporting melanotic stools or hematochesia, you still do not perform a DRE because of the risk of introducing bacteria across the rectal mucosa and into the bloodstream. And these patients commonly present with hidden infections perianally, and so it's important to check, but do not do the rectal Absolutely. I could not have said it better myself. These patients have hidden infections. You need to do a GU exam. You need to look perianally. You need to actually look in the oral cavity too for dental infections, which can pop up. This is the patient where 90% of your diagnosis is actually going to come from your history and physical, just like we were all taught in medical school. And so the more thorough your examination is, especially on the altered patient, then the more likely you are to actually be able to help your patient. How often is it where you don't find a clear source of infection and what do you do then? Only about every other patient. (laughs) (laughs) It can be very frustrating because the patient is immunosuppressed. They are not going to always necessarily mount the same physical exam findings that we see for common infections. So it's important that you take the symptoms into account, decide how high risk or low risk that patient is. And then very often we end up just beginning empiric treatment for these patients, um, even if we don't have a very specific source. If we do have a specific source, so say you sent a respiratory viral panel and it came back positive, or you got a urinalysis and a urine culture and that came back positive, then the patient will still be admitted, but you can at least tailor your treatment. For the patient who looks sick and seems ill, that you don't know where the source is coming from, then empiric treatment with broad-spectrum antibiotics to cover both gram-positive, gram-negative, plus or minus MRSA is indicated. There's been a lot of research done into if you need double coverage for certain bacterial species or if monotherapy is good enough. Uh, The current recommendations are that monotherapy by itself is sufficient for empiric coverage. And most people typically reach for some kind of anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam. So one of the penem, so carbapenem, imipenem, uh, cefepime, zosin at an appropriate dosage can sometimes be just as effective as well. And then many physicians will plus minus add on vancomycin for added uh, MRSA coverage, kind of depending on what they suspect the problem is and what history of infections the patient has had in the past. Empiric treatment with antifungals is currently not recommended. So you don't have to worry about using fluconazole or caspofungin unless the patient has a known history of some sort of fungal infection. So you said history is so important in these patients. What questions should we be asking to make sure that we don't miss anything? So you should probably be asking all of the questions that we learned as first-year medical students. And in a busy department, this is really hard to do and hard to slow down long enough to remember all of the things. So you want to ask specifically, what type of chemo regimen is the patient on? When was their last chemotherapy? Do they have any history of neutropenia? Do they have any history of infections that required prolonged hospitalization? 
And then other more general ID questions, so other general infectious disease questions. Do they have any exposures? Have they been traveling recently? Have they been camping recently? Have they come into contact with any ill person with a history of tuberculosis or valley fever? Since I practice in Southern California, that's one of the things that we have to ask as well. You just want to try to be thorough to get as much information about where this fever could be coming from as possible. What are the different differentials that you should keep in mind when these patients present? What are the most common things that they present with? So they're going to look like your average septic infected patient, but it's going to be, if they're very ill, it's going to kind of look like sepsis on steroids, which is why I tend to use that phrasing because it gives all of us a very specific mental picture of exactly how ill these patients look. If they are coming in febrile, they're going to be tachycardic. They may or may not be hypotensive. Depending on their disease process, they may or may not have some O2 sat problems. So it's not going to be exactly a subtle thing that you have to entertain a very broad differential to try to diagnose. Now, what we oftentimes will not consider are all of the other things that could be going on with whatever primary malignancy or hematologic problem they have. So for patients who have solid organ tumors, you also have to consider all of the effects that that solid organ tumor is having on the rest of their body as well. Many patients have uh, lung cancer. And if you have a tumor in exactly the right spot, then you may have neutropenic fever on top of your SVC syndrome. Or if they have just gone through induction chemo, then maybe you might have tumor lysis syndrome on top of your febrile neutropenia as well. It can get very complicated, not because of the entity itself, but just because of the combinations that we can see neutropenic fever combined with. Definitely a very scary patient to have come in. Not, not the best time to be running off to get a cup of coffee, no. How often do these patients have to be resuscitated? It depends on the patient and it depends on their own individual reserve that they might have. Oftentimes, they're getting standard sepsis resuscitation, so plenty of IV fluids, plenty of antipyretics, and all of the usual stuff that we do for sepsis. The times when things might get complicated is if they also are having complications of anemia or thrombocytopenia because of their chemotherapy or because of their malignancy that they have going on. This is a time where you do want to resuscitate those blood factor numbers as much as possible. And then they also stand a slightly proportionally higher uh, risk of going into DIC in the setting of their infectious process compared to just your average, otherwise healthy septic patient. So it's worth it to keep a very, very close eye on them because they are going to need quite a bit of work. So your whole talk is about what can we do for these patients in the emergency department. There's so much going on. We have a lot of history to get, a very thorough physical, and sometimes that's not easy to do in a very busy emergency department. So what exactly can we do for these patients? I think that there are a couple of things that we can do for ourselves. One is be aware of just how ill these patients are uh, so that when they do present to our department, we realize just the extra bit of time that it's going to take so that we can prioritize tasks appropriately. And two, it gives us a chance, this increased awareness, to have a game plan already in place before they even hit the door. That way we're not being as reactionary to the situation and we've already worked out a game plan so that it isn't the 10-minute to now 30-minute interview process, but rather the 10-minute to 12-minute because we already knew the extra couple of things we needed to ask. If you have already planned out for the patient ahead of time and have already and already know the questions to ask and the exam maneuvers to do, 
then it ends up being part of just your regular interview and uh, physical exam. It doesn't have to be the three trips back to the room as you remember one more thing that you're supposed to be asking. So the patients that we do discharge home, is there indication for antibiotics for the neutropenic fever patients? Great question. Currently, there are not any accepted guidelines for prophylactic antibiotics or empiric antibiotics for home treatment, unless you know exactly what you're treating. So for example, I mentioned earlier, being able to tailor your antibiotic therapy if somebody comes in with a very straightforward URI or a UTI. So let's say that you have a patient, a female patient who is undergoing induction chemo for her hematologic cancer, and she already has a history of getting bladder infections, and now she has another one. Well, based off of her prior cultures, if you do have prior cultures available, and some of that, even if you don't have culture, some of that history can come from the patient. Have you ever had to be hospitalized to treat your bladder infections before is a very easy way of getting that information. But if they have no history, if they're hemodynamically stable and they've got close outpatient follow-up, then there's no reason why this patient can't also be treated with an appropriate home course of antibiotics. Now, I would hesitate to make that judgment call by myself without collaborating with the patient's hematologist or oncologist. And that kind of brings me into my one caveat for this entire talk, is that a well-educated, fully prepared emergency physician cannot replace a patient's own specialist. And everything that we do in the ED should be done in conjunction and in collaboration with that patient specialist. Many of these guidelines and these empiric treatments are when the are what to do if the specialist isn't readily available or if you're at a place where the patient actually travels to see their specialist, if they uh, travel out of state because of a very rare condition they have. So if your numbers look good, if the patient looks good, if the story makes sense, and the patient's oncologist is on board with it, then yes, these patients can go home with normal outpatient antibiotics. So do you call the specialist on every single patient that comes in with this problem? Or is it just the sick ones or ones that you're not really sure how to manage? If the specialist is readily available and it seems to be one of the disease entities that are unique to a hematologic oncologic process, then it's my experience that the specialists do prefer to know that their patient is in the emergency room. It is very rare nowadays to be able to find truly excellent medical systems where we have a much more cohesive care approach to the patient. And oftentimes we rely on our patients to carry information back and forth from their different specialists. Oh yeah, I was supposed to tell you I was in the emergency room. Or oh yeah, my hematologist wanted me to tell you X, Y, and Z. And I feel like that puts a little bit of an undue burden on a patient. Even in eras of electronic medical records, we all are guilty of waiting a couple days before we sign our chart and that actually will populate into the system. So the more crosstalk that we can have amongst each other, the better care that we are going to have for the patient. I think that's a really important point to bring up. So can you summarize a couple of other common hemoc emergencies that we'll see in the department? Absolutely. So two other big ones to be aware of that they exist as disease entities. Uh, the first one is tumor lysis syndrome, which is a phenomenon of massive cell breakdown and uh, rapid cell turnover that just releases a ton of intracellular contents into the body. The reason why we have to be aware of it is because you can see some pretty wonky, to be super scientific, electrolyte abnormalities as a result of it. And the way that we make the diagnosis is by looking at potassium, phosphorus, uric acid, and calcium. 
So the disastrous combination is high levels of potassium, phos, and uric acid with a correspondingly low calcium level, so hypocalcemia. The reason why this is so important to be aware of is because this can predispose your patient to many dysrhythmias, to seizures if their electrolytes get really, really imbalanced. And they may or may not even need dialysis as a result of the kidney injury that comes about from these electrolyte abnormalities. So it's important to be on the lookout and to specifically check those electrolyte levels. And if you do find that your patient is meeting criteria for tumor lysis syndrome, they are going to need massive fluid resuscitation. So the secret to pollution is dilution. Give your patient lots and lots of fluids. If necessary, you can even begin dialysis, emergent dialysis, or CRRT, depending on what is available at your shop. One of the other things to be aware of is hyperviscosity syndrome, which is a buildup of protein or a specific cell type within the bloodstream. We see this oftentimes with new diagnosis of types of leukemias, where the patient has a white count of 150,000. The reason why this can be such a strange entity is because your blood literally slows down and you can get very odd symptoms because of what is functionally a focal clot type of syndrome. So again, fluid resuscitation is the name of the game in order to treat this, but just be aware that your patients can come in with some very, very strange, very odd symptoms, anything from blurred vision to in a, a, to a febrile response because of the increased protein in your bloodstream to shortness of breath or just a focal limb pain it can be very odd. Well, thank you so much for all of these pearls. I'm sure, as you said in the beginning, everyone's a little apprehensive when these patients come in. So it's great that we can have you here to give us some tips and tricks and try to figure these patients out. Well, it was absolutely my pleasure, like I said in the beginning, and I'm hoping that with a little bit of extra information, uh, nobody will be quite as terrified about these problems as I was my first year out. So thank you very much for having me. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.